When I was running Manhattan Prep, um, I stepped down as CEO to start Venture for America in 2011. And I have to say the organization did not skip a beat. Uh, and <laughs> I thought, you, huh? and I thought to myself, wow, it turns out I was not that important. <laughs> uh, and you know, there was some part of me that was a little bit uh, crestfallen where I was like, oh, I'll make myself available to the incoming uh, executive director, head of the company or whatnot. And oh, you know what else happens? The person you bring in as your successor never calls you. Or if they do call you, it's just with a concrete ask. Because mm -hmm. it turns out they don't really want your advice. They want you to get lost. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's I totally do. The way that most people operate in life, and, I, and a lot of people listening to this probably have been through this. It's like, let, let's say that you have a new head of a company. The first thing people think to themselves is, how does this affect me? <laughs> you know? Uh, and, and so then people are just like, oh, am I going to be okay? And then as soon as you're like, yeah, you're fine. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> you know, who, who's, the, who's the new person? This person. I'm like, oh. like most people right. immediately are just like, okay, as long as my stuff is more or less stable, like I'll just get used to the new reality. I think strong organizations can do without the founder. And I'm so proud of the fact mm. that Venture for America has been going strong now for years without me. Uh, I, I think that actually is the highest mark of entrepreneurship is that you can build something and then step away and then it thrives without you. Yes. I do liken it a bit to parenting. It's like you don't want a kid who fucking needs you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's not of good course. parenting. Like, you know, the kid mm -hmm. gets to, um, you know, 25 and is like, hey, you know, like – uh, you know, in, mom. <laughs> yeah, like screwing this light bulb for me or whatever the, like, the thing is. You're like, you know, do it yourself. Right. So you want the org to be the same way. This week on Forward the Podcast, we talk about founder syndrome in the wake of Jack Dorsey stepping down from Twitter, Omicron, ominous, and also the politicization of the economy, the fact that people now have an opinion about the economy based upon how they feel about the party in power. Yeah, I know that's that's happening. This week on Forward. We are back on the Forward Podcast. This week, who knows what the fuck we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about it first, and then we'll do the intro later. The magic. Just going to let it. The magic of not-so-live entertainment. Going to let it take us where our hearts desire, brother. Happy uh, belated. Uh, hope your Thanksgiving was good, man. Yeah, it was Back. great. Uh, family, food, a uh, lot of food. Definitely the best holiday. No pressure, you know? No presents. Yeah, it was, it was lovely. Yeah. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. So news of the week. Jack Dorsey is stepping down as CEO of Twitter. And then he's taking the next step and leaving the board about six months from now. Uh, unusual for someone to step away fully. Read his note on Twitter about his resignation. Right. And I, I need to backdrop this by saying that we are friendly friends with Jack Dorsey. Friend of the show. Friend of the show. Yes. You can look up my convo with Jack Dorsey last year uh, to get a sense as to who he is. 
I thought that podcast interview with him, which was one of our highest rated episodes, was an unusual glimpse because it's not like Jack ordinarily does interviews like that. Mm -hmm. Ordinarily, it's a different type of environment. Mm. Um, So I like Jack. I appreciate Jack. I uh, admire him. I'm indebted to him. Uh, He's been one of the biggest champions of universal basic income. And that includes supporting the cash relief efforts of Humanity Forward during the pandemic. So if you're looking for someone uh, who's somehow, you know, not uh, not friends with Jack, this is not the <laughs> this is like not the looking combo. for the anti Jack takes. Probably yeah. not us. We like Jack. Yeah, we we like Jack. Um, and he's someone who just openly came out and said, "Look, we're making decisions that." We shouldn't be making. And at this point, technology companies, the government, media, organizations, the nonprofit should get together right. and try to establish some guidelines. I thought that was very reasonable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it, what's unreasonable now is that our government is way behind the curve and then foisting various decisions on private enterprises saying, hey, do this, do that. You screwed this up. Uh, frankly, there is no way to draw a line if you're a Twitter that's not going to piss someone off. <laughs> Uh, and then yeah. the uh, the hearings are completely inane and nonsensical. Right. I mean, they're, they're like legitimate issues. Um, but Jack's been one of the good ones in my mind saying like, yeah, there are legitimate issues. And like, let's right. try to get together on, on this. I have a certain level of empathy for these tech founders because they built something with a great idea, obviously. And then it becomes something that no one could have ever, fa- ever fathomed. And so they're stuck with this okay, what do we do with this? How do we monitor it? How do we, I don't want to use the word, I mean, censor is what's thrown around, but how do you navigate the the hate and the love and the the free-for-all that is the what the internet was when they first started and still is today? And the government's been out to lunch doing nothing. What did you think, I don't think we ever talked about this. What did you think when they kicked Trump off? Um, I don't know if you ever had public thoughts on that. I think at that point it was the right move. I mean, he was legitimately inciting violence right. uh, and lives were lost. Uh, you know, like what right. was before you'd consider it somewhat political had kind of gone into another area. Uh, and I, I will say that the world has been a little bit less noisy and more lucid with <laughs> Trump off of the major social media platforms. Um, Now, there are people that will look at that and and say, oh, that's the wrong decision. It's censorship and freedom of speech and the rest of it. Um, The the thing that people don't understand is that the First Amendment freedom of speech says that government shall not abridge people's freedom of speech. Newsflash, Twitter is not the U.S. government. (laughs) Twitter is a private company yeah. That can have terms of service and do what it wants. It's like if you went into a restaurant and started doing things that were against that restaurant's term, t- terms of service, I mean, mm-hmm. whatever it is, and they can be like, hey, get lost. Mm-hmm. And that's allowed. And you can't be like, hey, I can say whatever I want because of the First Amendment. That's not the way it works. Right. It's like the government's not supposed to abridge your freedom. Uh, but if a private firm makes a decision that you're <laughs> not not – Wearing, I don't. I was gonna joke saying like wearing a shirt because that's what I think of in a restaurant. <laughs> it's like I'm not sure if there's a, in a, a wearing a shirt equivalent. Yeah, wearing a shirt like where it's like uh, there's like a you know you have a right to bare your torso. <laughs> um, yeah. So so a private firm making a decision like that 
uh, I thought was appropriate. Right. If it, I mean, if it was a comedy club where people are like, I'm trying to get like a more accurate analogy where the, the role of the participants or the talent there is to say whatever they want. The comedy club could kick someone out that's saying something offensive, right? Um, well, that crosses a line. Yeah, um, I mean, hopefully that doesn't happen in a comedy club. I feel like comedy club. You can yeah, I agree. That's not the best environment. But, but maybe, but that's the point. There probably is a line for comedy clubs, right? Where you're um, oh, man, inciting violence. and um, Yeah, I suppose if you were just, if, if you were legitimately inciting violence in the club. Right, I mean, I guess which is what point. I think, and that was January 6th that really, that really did it, right? I, I also want to say, too, that Jack runs two major tech companies, too. I mean, that's the thing to know. He also runs Square, right? Yeah. yeah. A, so, and either of those jobs is enormous. <laughs> you know what I mean? Big jobs. Like, they're, they're both public companies worth tens of billions of dollars, have hundreds or thousands of people working for them, touch millions of people having any individual in charge of two of those enterprises at the same time strikes me as frankly kind of superhuman mm-hmm. now uh, there are other examples of this i mean elon's running uh tesla and spacex and a couple of other things right. um so to the extent that you are one of these founders and you've managed to put yourself in in that particular position i mean I, i'm not intrinsically uh my against that sort of arrangement if that's you know the the best approach i I will say though that having run various organizations it it strikes me as like a whole lot for any individual it's a little bit like if you're a sports fan where the nba has done away with this president role where you're both the gm and the coach Mm -hmm. uh because they've decided you know what you should probably have two different people doing those jobs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's not like Jack doesn't have a massive set of responsibilities that he immediately uh, is turning to. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, he's right now dividing his time between these two huge firms. I used to have a boss when I was at UBS. We used to, um, he was uh, like a field guy. He used to manage, we had, it was it was wealth management, so we managed financial advisors, and they were managers of those financial advisors, and it treed up, and there were 7,000 of them. Um, so there's a lot of people to manage, plus their teams and all the employees and all the people who look up to you. And there were certain roles he was hiring, and he'd be like, yep, that's a big job. And those level, you'd still, that person would only have a couple thousand, a couple, as if it's small, but a couple, a few thousand financial advisors, and then all the, the managers that report up to him or her. And even that was big. So the concept to me of, and it's right, what does a big job mean? It's taking all of your time. You're traveling probably a lot. You've got a lot of people depending on you, their livelihood, mouths to feed, all these things. Your decisions affect the lives of, frankly, millions if you do the trickle down. So the concept of being CEO of two tech conglomerates is mind-blowing to me. Um, You probably have to have really good people doing some of the operational work and day-to-day decision-making. I could be wrong, maybe they are superhuman. They do it themselves. But well, I from my limited exposure to Jack, I do get the sense that he's extraordinary at streamlining his yeah. uh, responsibilities and time. Where he, I think he just goes in and focuses on uh, the most important things mm-hmm. uh, and has excellent people around him. Right. Um, but that's from the outside looking in. Right. Um, so I wanted to ask you about founder syndrome because um, I come from in the nonprofit social enterprise world, and you, and you spent some time there too. And in that world, it's um, great and exciting young nonprofits are so founder-driven because it's their job to just exude the energy and the optimism and raise money and 
everybody who's donating to a big nonprofit wants to meet the founder. So they end up being like the only player in many ways. You can't outsource a lot of the founder role. Um, and you end up treating the org a bit like it's your child, like it's your baby or like a part of you. And maybe that's similar to being, uh, you know, treating like a child. Did you, I'm sure you felt this in your own way, but what was that experience founder syndrome wise at Venture for America? Cause you eventually left and the org is still thriving. Um, what did you, how'd you experience that? A friend said to me a, a while ago and he's right, nonprofits run on passion. And so when you're the founder, you are exuding passion for mm -hmm. the mission. Uh, that's to, by the way, get people to work with you too. I mean, not just donors mm -hmm. or supporters or board members or partners. Or, yeah, it's employees. It's like who the heck's going to join this firm? And you have to really mm -hmm. believe. Uh, I started Venture for America in 2011 and ran it for six years. And so there was a lot of love, like you said. It, you felt like you were the head of an extended family. And it's very, very difficult to leave because you feel almost a sense of like abandonment to your mm -hmm. point. In my case, I left to run for president of the United States and uh, I, I'm actually going to share something. Um, so I ran an education company for a similar length of time, uh, maybe, uh, five years. And leaving that firm was very, very hard because I also felt like the head of that household. And so I needed to do something very purpose-driven in order to justify leaving, frankly. Like, I, I wouldn't have been able to live with myself if I was just saying, like, hey, guys, I'm leaving as head of the company so I can, you know, uh, chill out or find myself or mm -hmm. any of those things. I mean, you know, no, nothing against people who do that. Right. Um, but I just would have felt like I was shirking. And so in my case, I left to start this nonprofit that was going to help create thousands of jobs and mm -hmm. like, give rise to this culture of entrepreneurship. And so that that was something that I could say and feel very good about. And I felt the same way leaving Venture for America, where it's like, OK, I'm leaving to run for president on universal basic income. And that was a very big, noble, somewhat unlikely mission. Mm -hmm. uh, and and then so if someone at Venture for America was like, okay, Andrew's doing this. I actually thought that my presidential run was in some ways meant to serve as an example for folks who are in Venture for America where it's like, okay, someone can do something big mm. and ambitious and actually succeed on some level. And I'll say to you, Zach, that I felt immense pressure uh, because uh, the folks at Venture of America saw me leave to run for president. And then if I fell flat on my face, I'd, I'd feel really bad mm -hmm. <laughs> because yeah. everyone who's part of Venture of America is like, hey, you know, our founder left to do this stupid thing. I mm -hmm. mean, if it was a flop. So that was one of the things that drove me to, to try and uh, make a mark was like, oh, man, if I left uh, VFA, this org that I spent years building uh, to do something, I'd better do it well. This podcast is sponsored by Helix Sleep. I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses as tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched 
with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com yang. That's helixsleep.com yang. This is their best offer yet and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. I've seen this a lot. So if you're the founder of this org and you're the passion, you're growing it, you're the hiring the people, it's very, very, very difficult to leave. You managed to leave with even higher and let's call it different ambitions. You went from for-profit to non-profit, from non-profit to politics. Like you're one of the, probably one of the only ones that have ever done it well. Most of the time it's a really awkward transition because let's say you've been selling this, we're going to cure, you know, uh, we're going to give drinking, clean drinking water to the entire world. And you've been selling this and everybody's buying, buying what you're selling. And then you leave it's like you gave up, right? When in reality, you've been doing it for 10 years, seven years, like you may just want a life change, right? And then the other thing is if you're a really successful charity and you're raising tons and tons of money, you're now at the upper echelons of society, right? You're mingling with the world's richest, wealthiest, most famous people and you're not rich yourself. And it's a little bit of a, that is that is hard, especially when you're clearly um, smart enough to make money and smart enough to, to be kind of, thriving in the capitalist society. So I don't know if you ever felt if that was ever part of it or have you ever thought about the, the money aspect? Um, well, I, I made a comment that that's what politicians feel, where they're <laughs> we have to talk about this all bit. of that's these right. rich people. And then you're like, I'm just as important and smart and mm -hmm. capable as you are. And then the rich people are like, yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah. Hey, let's cut you in on this deal. Mm -hmm. Hey, hey, do this. They go, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Uh, and one of the mysteries of our time is how people are getting so rich in office in D.C. You notice that? Yeah. It's like they go in as relatively normal people making salaries of X and then come back uh, multimillionaires. And you're like, how, like, how the heck did that happen? Like, I can look up your salary. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, uh. Like it's, it's either insider trading or advisory shares on boards. Uh, probably a combo. I don't know. Well, uh, but I have been in these environments and there are very wealthy people that do want to be your friends and they do want to cut you in on various things. Right. Uh, and so I, I think that's where it goes. You know, you hear about politicians being on boards and being in various deals. Right. Um, and, and a lot of political figures um, haven't necessarily made money in business or, or uh, right. you know, and, and so if you're around these donor types, but you're right on the nonprofit side as well. I knew a lot of founders of nonprofits who were, doing the the right thing and then at some point they'd look up and say wait this isn't sustainable for me if i want to have a family if i want to do mm -hmm. this um and that's a very very difficult transition for a lot of people to make i've you know the tough part too is if you're the founder of a nonprofit, you're not allowed to acknowledge that in most environments like i, I was the head of venture for america and i'd be sitting with the head of another nonprofit, and they would be talking to me about how like hey i'm trying to 
um, proposed to, to my girlfriend, but I don't mm -hmm. think I can afford this. And like, I'm worried that they're not going to, um, to be able to envision a future with me because we live in this small place and, you know, like we're driving this used car and like blah, blah, blah. And I would hear this stuff. And frankly, in my case, it would just make me like go home and just be grateful because in my case, I'd at least made some money as a, um, private company CEO and, and entrepreneur before I decided to go nonprofit. Uh, but someone who just been in the nonprofit world and, and worked uh, their hearts out, you know, that they would be struggling and then they wouldn't be able to say that openly because, oh, by the way, they're supposed to be martyrs. They're supposed to be mm -hmm. driven by the work. It's like the work is the privilege. <laughs> no, I'm only going to take this one step further, too. I mean, there are a lot of creatives who are in a similar boat. Yeah. Where, like you're about the art. And then you're not allowed to complain about it's like, hey, you know, I'm not making much money here as a musician or uh, actor or right. playwright or whatever the thing is. Yeah. So the, the nonprofit founder syndrome is very, very tough and very, very real. Uh, I was extraordinarily fortunate that there was an awesome person ready to take on the CEO role uh, as I stepped away. Um, I do remember going to my board in early 2017 saying, hey, guys, I'm leaving to run for president. And the reactions, as you can imagine, were all over the map. <laughs> uh, but they, they got with the program quickly where they were like, Andrew's leaving. And right. then they were like, oh, let's figure out what the next era looks like. And uh, I'm happy to say that Venture of America has just continued to go on. The, the couple of years after I left were actually some of the best years. So I used to joke that, you know, I must have been holding it back. We, Dan Pallotta. Uh, it's one of my favorite. He is a TED Talk called Uncharitable. But he's a thought leader in this space. And he's exceptional, exceptional public speaker. But one of the things he says is we have a problem in the United States of America where people make a ton of money doing good. We have a problem with that. It's not okay. It's not acceptable. But we have no problem if you make a ton of money doing bad, doing terrible things. Like if you frack your way to billions and billions of dollars and destroy the environment in the process, we'll put you on the cover of Forbes. We'll praise that. You're a billionaire. Like, if you want to run for president, we'll tout you. We'll media cover you. Like, you're a superstar. But if you make a million dollars running the C being the CEO of the Boys and Girls Club, which is helping millions of kids, right? If you streamline that and triple revenues and make a million dollars compared to a billion we're talking about, we'll literally crucify you. And we have. I think in 2010, they got rid of the Boys and Girls CEO was fired for uh, having a million dollar total compensation and paying their executives well, even though their track record was pretty great at the time. Um and now I don't think, you know, and no one wants their donations going to pay for Andrew Yang's yacht adventure for America or something like that. But there's got to be a happy medium um, because in order to run anything, you need talent um, and you got to have incentivizing entrepreneur. I don't know. I remember a Dan Pallotta TED talk, too, where he was he was talking about how if you went to a fancy business school and your option was either start a nonprofit or make lots of money and then join the board of a nonprofit, everyone would do the latter. Yeah. <laughs> and and then we praise that too. It's like, oh, it's all, it's like smarter. Yeah. Um, because, you know, then you don't have to actually make massive financial sacrifices. You just give a little bit of yeah. money and then you're, you're there bossing around the person who actually. <laughs> and we'll put your name on the door, right? No executive director gets their name on the door or the name on the building. Uh, it's usually the donor. So. <laughs> yeah, you and I lived versions of this, man. People yeah. don't appreciate. Zach here started a nonprofit for underprivileged kids called Suit Up that's been doing great work for a decade. And he managed to do that in addition to all of his other stuff. That was my... Um, so we talked about it a bit, but I, like one of the things we had, like the founder syndrome of this, actually real, where that 
so when I joined the campaign, which was you and me and a couple others in 2018, um, I transitioned, sued up, basically like gave the keys to a new hire. Um, her name was Lauren Riley, and, and she's exceptional. Um, but it was hard for me to give the ropes to someone to like let give your it's like you're handing your kid over you know um and it was you find i found myself like biting my tongue a lot like don't do that or do this or trying to give advice or maybe i shouldn't have and it was a it was a good transition for us but did you feel that when you left vfa or were you able because president was so time consuming able to just go cold turkey and like good luck venture for america well I, i've had a couple of experiences here where when i was running manhattan prep um i stepped down as ceo to start venture for america in 2011 and I have to say, the organization did not skip a beat. Uh, and <laughs> I thought, you, huh? and I thought <laughs> to myself, that's like, oh, like I'm, I'm important here. You know, like I have a lot of uh, experience and relationships, and like uh, the org did not skip a beat. And so the lesson I took from that is like, wow, it turns out I was not that important. <laughs> uh, and. You know, there was some part of me that was a little bit uh, crestfallen where it's like, oh, I'll make myself available to the incoming uh, executive director, head of the company or whatnot. And, oh, you know what else happens? The person you bring in as your successor never calls you or if they do call you, it's just with a concrete ask Mm because it turns out they don't really want your advice. They want you to get lost. Yeah, (laughs) totally do. Um, So because I'd been through that experience when I left Venture for America and I was a much more integral part of Venture for America than I was Manhattan Prep, even though I was the CEO and, you know, president of Manhattan Prep. But I I was more tied to the uh, life's blood of Venture for America. But I still thought, like, you know what, they're going to be okay without me. And the the way that most people operate in life, and, I, and a lot of people listening to this probably have been through this, is like let, let's say that you have a new head of a company. The, the first thing people think to themselves is, how does this affect me? <laughs> you know, uh, and, and so then people are just like, oh, am I going to be okay? And then as soon as you're like, yeah, you're fine, they're like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, who, who's the, who's the new person? This person. And I'm like, oh, like most people right. immediately are just like, okay, as long as my stuff is more or less stable. Like, I'll just get used to the new reality. Uh, and that that took, uh, again, a bit of adjustment because you're like, oh, like, isn't it important that it be me? And then it's like, <laughs> uh, not really. So uh, having been through that with one company and then a nonprofit, I think strong organizations can do without the founder. And I'm so proud of the fact mm. that Venture for America has been going strong now for years without me. Uh, I think that actually is the highest mark of entrepreneurship is that you can build something and then step away and then it thrives without you. Yes. I do liken it a bit to parenting. It's like you don't want a kid who fucking needs you. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's not of good course. parenting. Like, you know, the kid mm-hmm. gets to, um, you know, 25 and is like, hey, you know, like. Uh, you know, in, mom. <laughs> yeah, like screwing this light bulb for me or whatever the, like, the thing is. You're like, you know, do it yourself. Right. So you want the org to be the same way. Uh, it's tough to try to cultivate a new CEO or leader. Um, and now that's something that uh, I think if you're the head of an organization, you should always be um, be keeping an eye out for. It's like, okay, is there someone who could actually make me irrelevant? Yeah. So our CEO now, Lauren, 
it has been remarkable. Sudep's like completely better in every way, right? Um, and and we're now gonna we're gonna be a million dollar organization next year. I talk about the time. It's fantastic. I feel like a proud to your point, proud parent. Um, I do like to toot our own horn a bit, or anyone's horn. Is like the, the a good a sign of good leadership is that when the founder leaves or the leader leaves, the org can still not only exist but thrive. Um, and that they've set up, um, it's it's credit to the culture, the the idea, or whatever it is. So that was it, um, as as painful as that was. Like for me, it was painful to see suit up doing well, and I was like, completely worthless in many ways. Uh, but it's also now it's a point of pride, right? Like a little time, and I'm, I'm sure you feel that same way too. Where like uh, VFA still doing great. You know, I I have a number of marriage jokes here, Zach, where okay. it's like, you know. Of course, I can take direction. I'm married, but uh, you know, the, like the, there's like a degree of uh, acknowledgement of your own uh, extraneousness, <laughs> which I, I also think comes along with being. I said that to my dad. I was like, "Is the point when men get married, do they just have someone? If they get married to a woman, like you, just have someone the rest of your life that just points out your flaws. That's just there for you to just to say, hey, you got a gray hair. Hey, uh, you've got.'" xyz wrong with you is that is that what is that it it's not quite like that it's not as mean it, it's just, at least for me and evelyn it's like evelyn is aware of things i'm not aware of and sees things i'm not mm-hmm. aware of and so it's just like hey do this pay attention to this do this do this and you're like okay okay yeah 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 Got and um uh, and you know that that person is correct uh a whole lot <laughs> so, it's, it's also different when you like carly is is smarter than me so that's like another like I can't win an argument with her unless I'm really, really right. But other than that, like she'll just wordsmith their way out of whatever argument. And so that, that's like a whole nother can of worms too. I am, yeah. Shrug. Um, anyway, I, I would do recommend marrying or, or getting or dating and, and marrying someone smarter than you. It's a because um, if you win every argument, that's not fun either. You know? Yeah, yeah. You, like you know, you ideally, go. you have someone who's like a like a partner to you, where you know, like you. I mean, certainly for me, it's like. Uh, I'm going to share this joke too, where I talk to my boys about how they should appreciate Evelyn so much because she's such a great mom. And I say, if, if it was up to dad, um, your companion would be an inflated balloon um, called Inflato. And then every time you needed something, it would be like, talk to Inflato. And then Inflato would just sit there silent. <laughs> and I'd be like, that's how you'd learn to just do shit for yourself. Like, Jesus. so, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> so now every once in a while the egg household i just yell inflato <laughs> and then the boys start laughing because it's just like well but i say it when they're frankly being like kind of um needy or whiny uh you know when they're, they're just like hey this happened hey help me with this and i just yell inflato so there's a show a new show on netflix i'm not going to recommend it but if you guys are really desperate for content i'll you know throw this on your list it's called inside job it's an animated show about like making fun of all the, the conspiracies in the United States. They're like the deep state. But there's one guy who's like a super scientist genius. Um, it's Kelly Slater is the voice of it. And he didn't want to deal with his daughter. So he just made her like a giant bear robot called Barrow. And that's what that reminds me of. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to give her a hug. The kid's like totally like... traumatized from this. Um, the other thing it reminds me of <laughs> is on the campaign where like one of the hardest parts in the campaign running for president was like, things would happen in HQ. And for me, like learning one, what mattered at all, like whether those things in HQ actually mattered and two, whether they mattered enough to bring up to you, right? And I did not always get this right. I mean, we didn't always get this right. We're learning as we go, particularly in the beginning. But 
There was one time, I'll never forget this. I told, I brought something up and you just looked at me and go, Zach, here's what I want you to do. I want you to tell whoever brought this up in HQ to go put a mannequin in the closet in the back corner of our headquarters. <laughs> and I want that mannequin to have a sign. And every time things like this happen, I want you to go check the mannequin. When they go check the mannequin, they're going to open the closet door and they're going to walk in, they're going to see the mannequin, they're going to see the sign and the sign's going to say, it doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> <laughs> you remember this? Oh yeah, of course. <laughs> is this like, like a leadership yeah, tactic of yours? Has this like, happened in prior or... organizations? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, you know, it's, it's just true. Some of the time, yeah, people true, will yeah. just get themselves. So my my little boys tend to get themselves into a tizzy over stuff that yeah. you know, frankly, it, that didn't merit. And there were some people on HQ that had the same tendency. So it, it would yeah. be like consult the sign. Campaigns are hard too because <laughs> everything's happening at once. It was not a, not a knock on anyone because it's um you know um. There's a lot of stuff on campaigns that are just like table stakes. And so, so it's a zero-sum game, right? You either need to, you're either getting on the ballot or you're not, or you're either, you know, we're knocking on doors today or we're not, or that sort of thing. But when you're in that moment, it doesn't feel like a zero to one game. It feels like the whole gray in between matters. And that's like probably the hardest well, part. Well, you know, it's tough. I mean, it, it's tough when you're, uh, disconnected from the candidate or field and you're like, oh, they should be doing this, they should be doing that. And then when you're in the field, you'd be like, hey, guys, like we kind of have our hands full. Yeah, that don't work. You know, doing things and your suggestion, by the way, is not good. It's so. terrible. We tried that. <laughs> Please stop asking. We tried that four weeks ago and then abandoned <laughs> it immediately. That is the hard part. And it's it was harder for us too because you're not, you have robot tendencies in many ways, but you're not a political robot in the sense that you'll go up and just read the script and not think twice about it, right? Like, I couldn't... You have the comps team be like, all right, Andrew's got to say this. And I'll be like, you know, I try to massage it a bit. I'm like, no, you got to give it to Andrew. So I give it to Andrew. And you're like, what is this? This is trash. We're not doing this. And it's like, all right. I'm like, what are you like? Because uh, you're a human, you know? There are, but there were candidates. And I was somewhat jealous of them from a campaign manager standpoint. They would just read the script. Um, and a lot... All of those lost, frankly. Um, and uh, the best candidates, particularly in the top three or four... Or let's go to the top six to seven. Usually thought for themselves. Even Joe, like he wasn't, he was known for gas because he would go off script. Um, and sometimes that's when he was great too. Anyways, we somehow got Jack Dorsey has sparked a whole number of conversations. So thank you, Jack. Appreciate that. Ah, uh, good luck at Square, Jack. Good luck. Good luck at Square. Help all the small businesses. Thank you for supporting Manny Forward. Thank you for your money. <laughs> thank you for creating an addictive app. Uh, <laughs> for better or for worse. All right. Oh, we. I. You know. I. I should say. Uh. Certainly, the Yang Gang owes Twitter a great deal. I think so. Twitter, um, is a tough place. Um. But, <laughs> but, yes, but, it is. But Twitter definitely helped fuel the rise of our campaign. Mm -hmm. I like to think that we're still a very very positive force on Twitter. Uh. So yeah. Thank you for that too. I mean, that's the thing about these tech apps, right? The the upside, the good coming out of this is remarkable, right? Uh, and it is kind of on the government to help them mitigate the bad, right? Um, speaking of mitigating the bad, Omicron. Did I say that right? Yes, Omicron. Omicron, COVID variant. This is variant number God knows what. Uh, I think Omicron is the 15th Greek letter in the alphabet. I have no idea. If but they've skipped, the a they they skipped, skipped a few. They skipped Z, the one that was XI, Z, Chi, Kai, Z. I'm terrible at Greek letters, guys. Don't quote me on this. Um, they skipped that because I don't think it'd be good. I think that, I mean, there's rational reasons, I think. Um, anyway, they skipped a few. Yeah, I don't know if it's the 15th variant. Yeah. I don't know. Um, New York City is now requiring, they're strongly recommending to wear masks indoors in public places, which sucks. Um, 
I want to ask you, Andrew, do you think this thing is ever going away? There is going to be a push and pull uh, between humans and the coronavirus variants out into the foreseeable future. Uh, and I would measure that future in months and years. Um, so anyone who imagined that hopefully we'd be done with this thing, um, there are a number of reasons why we will not be done with this thing. The most obvious are that one, there's a significant body of humans around the world that are not vaccinated and there are ample places for this to, to mutate. Uh, number two is that the world is now interconnected. So guess what? I'm sure Omicron's already alive and well in the United States. Sure. I mean, I think uh, Canada just reported a case. I mean, uh, the odds yeah. of this being contained to where it was reported. Well, we're recording this Monday. This airs Thursday. Uh, there'll definitely be a case by then, right? Yeah, there'll yeah, probably, probably be a case, case by the time this airs. Yeah. And then um, there's also like a, a critical mass of unvaccinated people here in, in the U.S. Uh, and so you put all this together and the odds of this coming here to the U.S. and being a significant factor are very, very high. And oh, by the way, if it's not Omicron, it'll be the, the next one. Greek letter after that, the Greek letter after that. Um, so what we should be doing, in, in my mind, is uh, accepting that this is the new way of things and the new reality, uh, and then try to mitigate, but live our lives. But by the way, we shouldn't let it obsess us we shouldn't let it, let it keep us from living our lives uh you know that like there there's there's a risk reward ratio to everything and the just the risk is going to be with us for a while um but we should not try and say to ourselves that like the risk is uh total to a point where it completely changes our behaviors or our relationships <sighs> it's um well the, the other thing just to add on that is that even if you are vaccinated, people are still you're still getting it, and some people are still dying from the vax. The vax is doing good, but it's not it's not a full, it's not foolproof for at least right now, right? Oh yeah, I mean that that's what, what the concern is about Omicron is that it's got a bunch of mutations that would make it likely to infect someone who has certain antibodies based upon existing vaccines. Now you can have an Omicron specific vaccine that gets developed, and then that would be more helpful. So that's what they're going to work on right now. Uh, and we can look forward to all get, going out and getting that vaccine. Mm -hmm. Incidentally, if you're listening to this, uh, I think that vaccines are a great idea. And if you're still uh, not vaccinated, um, please do strongly consider doing so because yeah. it'll protect you. Uh, hey, you might even make out well in the sense that maybe you'll get like the cool new Omicron <laughs> or you'll, you'll get some vaccines that are, you know, like a little bit right. more um, developed or with it. Who knows? But, you know, I, I think vaccines are a good, uh, a good countermeasure just for your personal safety and, and health. So I was looking at the the graph. This is the New York Times, so take that what we will. But the graph of case new cases of COVID since since it started. Let's call it March second of twenty twenty. Do you know when the peak of COVID cases were? Uh, probably early last year. It was early. It was late twenty twenty, and then the actual peak is January 9th, twenty twenty one. Early this year. Um, so it wasn't in March. What I thought was that, that that was the spike. The actual spike, at least according to this, like if you just Google COVID cases and what they're from the New York Times, it seemed like such an outbreak and it was because we were not prepared for it. Um, 
But we still, and then the second, we still are getting a ton of cases post-vaccine and post, uh, or I guess this isn't post-vaccine, but um, in the winter months. And then the second peak was actually this summer um, of this year, of 2021, uh, in August and early September. Um, so COVID's still real. I think it's frustrating. I think it's frustrating for all of us. So th this is a nuance, right? Um, I'm curious your take or response to this. So on one hand, COVID's bad. It's deadly. People are dying. They're getting really sick. Um, it's been politicized. The vaccine itself has been politicized. That is not fun. Um, on the other hand, and this is where my question is coming. Like we're not a we're not a communist society. We believe in capitalism. So if people want really to live in the United States, you have to work, generally speaking. And if they want to work, they got to go outside and they have to work with others. And that risks more COVID exposure, right? So those who can move to like adjust to this lifestyle, I think have, right? There are plenty of folks who had the means that, and, and those who wanted to were afraid of COVID They have, and they could move, they have. They moved to suburbs, they moved to places with outdoor, um, less people, more outdoor space. But many have not or cannot. Um, so my question, I, I really want to talk about the policy ideas here, given that this, I think you just kind of outlined, this is probably our new normal for the next five years. Like, maybe that's too far, but it, it's not great. Several years. Um, several, yeah, a number of years. Um, if this thing's going to keep mutating and we all keep getting sick, what are the policy ideas? I have a couple, but what what do you do if you're in charge to navigate this? Because I think what we're doing right now is unsustainable, where it's like, don't mask up. No, 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 mask up. We got to freak out. And like, people are like, oh, we're coming back. Oh, we're not coming back. Like, I think, I don't know. I don't know. You have bigger policy ideas that navigate this new normal. Well, I, I heard one thing that was not great, which is that uh, apparently there are issues of confidence with the CDC, not just in the public, but um, in the government. Yeah. Um, but they don't want to turn the CDC into a punching bag. Mm -hmm. And so you're looking at it being like, oh, I, you know, but uh, unfortunately, public confidence has already been shaken. So if you make various recommendations, it's. Uh, you know, it, it's tough as you're describing. It's like, wait, what did you say? What, like, what did you say last time? Yeah. Um, so the, the thing we have to acknowledge is that people are human. Uh, people have limited uh, ability to absorb different messages and, and guidance and, and the yep. rest of it. Uh, and so we should set out some broad principles around uh, who you are, what your vulnerability level is, uh, and take mm. it from there, in my opinion. Um so if you're a normal person, uh, you should expect that, you know, getting vaccinated is a good idea and that if you're vaccinated, there'll be some risk associated with certain activities. Now, if you're not a vulnerable population, that risk will probably not be, um, no, uh, anything you can't recover from. Mm -hmm. I will say I have friends and family members who have had long COVID, um, and it is a beast. Oh man. Horrible. Yeah, like it's it's terrible, and they will recover. I most people know I had COVID, and so I recovered fully. There was a period when I was short of breath afterwards, when I was like, "Oh, this had better go away. Please let this go away." <laughs> yeah, um, and then it did go away, and I was very very thankful. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you know, I I know people who've still been struggling with it. Um, I attended a memorial service of. Uh, someone's mother who died of breakthrough COVID. I mean, that was freaking terrible. And there are times I look at my mom who's in her 70s and I'm just like, ruh, ruh. I mean, she's been vaccinated. Yeah. Um, but you don't want, you know, anything to break through. Um, 
so you want to be accepting of the limitations and fallibility of humans and then lay out a number of things that can be done that could genuinely mitigate uh, the, the harm. So if, if you are in a particular environment, I'll give you an example. I went to a Dave Chappelle show the other day, mm -hmm. um, concert, and then they tested the heck out of us on the way in. Um, and I thought that was fine, you know, and then anyone who was in there literally got a test and you stood there for 10 minutes while they gave you the result and be like negative. And yeah, so then you, so then you were with a bunch of people where you had a fairly high confidence level that they were all negative. Um, I think that's a, a fine type of ongoing precaution. Right. Um, and then there's that accepted level of risk that we all probably need to start accepting is that. COVID's a thing, but we're not going to sit at home all day. So we're still going to go to sporting events. So to go to concerts and restaurants and, um, that should be the public policy guidance. It's like, look, there is risk, but you, you can't eliminate the risk. You can mitigate it. You right. can do various things. And so that, that should be the guidance. So, all right, a couple policy suggestions on your thoughts on. Is there a place? So one of the things you suggested on climate change was to move folks to higher ground. And press gave us some shit for that. And now they're suggesting it themselves. Here we are. Um, is, I mean, hey, this is ridiculous. But I, I like talking about ridic ridiculous ideas. Um, is there a way to move vulnerable populations outside of vulnerable areas? And is that worthwhile for the government to spend money on? Right? So vulnerable populations being one, Older senior citizens who are in highly urban areas um, that want to but cannot afford to move. Folks that are in a or maybe immunocompromised or vulnerable, but in a close living space or something like that where they could they are they can be gainfully employed, but would rather do it in a less populated urban center. Um, is that something we could do or like or is that just something the government can never execute and this idea in practice would be a hot mess? Well, you referred earlier to the fact that a lot of people have been making various decisions already. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, people know that I'm all for putting money into people's hands. I'd be for putting money into people's hands and then letting them make a call. Yeah. Okay. Well, that answered my question way simpler than I thought. No, yeah, you're right, though. Um, you could say, you could do something like that. Like, look, here's your moving stipend, everyone. You can do whatever you want, but from now, but then we're reopening the economy. So if you're not in the situation, this is money that needs to be used for it, X, Y, Z. I don't know, or um, or we recommend, but you do what you want with it. I think the economy is going to be open for the foreseeable as well. Yeah, uh, I think in in part because, and this is the politics of it, where uh, shutting the economy down on behalf of COVID is a political loser, uh, and I think politics unfortunately are so prevalent today that democrats are going to want to avoid that as a, a step so i don't think that's going to be in the main conversation so this is my next kind of concept is like is it just live and let live then this is what florida has been doing they're like we take care of our most vulnerable but the reality is we're not closing down the economy because it's impossible and there's too many businesses you'd hurt they're already going to be hurt because people can't like people are reluctant to go outside. We can't hamstring them or hamstring them anymore. Um, live and let live. Like this is these are the risks, but we have this is our new normal. Republican state or governors have been doing this to, frankly, like ignore the mainstream press that's hammering them. Like they're they're still winning their elections and they're staying in power um, and with high appro or decent approval. Like DeSantis say we want about him his approval rating in Florida, like 
remember last I checked, pretty good. Is that where we're going? Like, is that are you going to see the left start to be more live and let live, or is this? Uh... Uh, I think that it's there. People are going to have uh, more forgiving attitude because of the fatigue factor. Uh, I do. I think, uh, and also the politics. Like, like if you poll people and say, "Hey, where's COVID in your issue set?" It used to be number one. Yeah. Now it's nowhere near number right. one. Uh, for for. Uh, better for worse. I mean, politics is driving a lot of things nowadays. So I, I don't think you're going to see people um, go as hard. And you know who I feel really bad for? I feel really bad for the healthcare workers. Cause yeah. Because I, I, I know folks who are in these settings and they say, look, no one's talking about it, but my hospital's overrun. Like, mm-hmm. like my colleagues are quitting. Like uh, my friends are all traumatized. I'm traumatized. Like you hear that and you're like, oh, no. Uh, and sometimes it's in environments where I was like, I didn't even know that COVID was ripping through that community in that way. Yeah. Um, so the the suffering is happening in those environments, in those facilities, regardless of whether the press makes a big deal out of it or not. I feel bad for anybody working in restaurants right now or bars because you have to wear a mask in most of these states. So you're like this faceless servant that you can't really interact with because they have a mask and I can't always hear them. But the people in there don't have to wear a mask, which... To me, I guess it's uh, I don't well. You're know, eating in a restaurant, food, so you're not wearing a mask, yeah. But the, but like, but yeah, I don't have to wear a mask if I walk in or anything either. Um, it's not, um but I, I don't know. I, that's why I think those jobs are already hard, and then to be kind of like othered in that way, you know, where they're so you feel so separate. I guess um, I don't know. It's a less enjoyable experience. You can't get to know your waiter, in my opinion. Maybe I'm just a awkward dad joke type that likes to make friends with the waiter. Last thing I want to touch on uh, your conversation with Derek Monday talking about, and it's kind of related to this, where the economy itself is now political. And you wrote an email on this. And we thought we touched on it. But oh, my gosh, deeper. guys. I, I think this is one of the most important ideas I've run across in quite some time. Yeah. And it is scary as shit. It's <laughs> okay. that, you know, you imagine that, that two parties are at least kind of uh, contesting various um, ideas as to how to drive the economy forward, like how to make our lives better. But it turns out that at this point... Your opinion on how the economy is uh, is contingent upon how you feel about the party in power. Mm-hmm. And so if you missed it, when I sat down with Derek Thompson, and he pointed out this stat to me. So the University of Michigan has been running consumer confidence surveys for years and decades. Mm-hmm. And there has always been some split between how... Democrats and Republicans have perceived the economy, but that split has grown into a gulf, the biggest gulf ever recorded, where right now Democrats who are asked about the economy say it's going great. Uh, And then Republicans are like, oh, it's terrible. (laughs) And there's a 49 point gap in this scale. Democrats are plus 49, Republicans like terrible. Independents somewhere in between. Independents, I think, are a little bit closer to, to Democrats. I can pull the numbers up. Okay. Okay, so the numbers from the University of Michigan. The Democrats are at 88.4, Republicans at 37.8 for a record difference of 49 points. Independents were at 70, so a bit closer to Democrats, but not nearly as high. So that plus 49 is the biggest gap in recorded history of the University of Michigan consumer survey. The gap of who thinks the economy is doing well? Yes. What's the actual question? Yes. And, uh, and so then you think, okay, well, maybe Democrats just live in flourishing areas on the coast, blah, blah, blah. But it turns out that the gap in October 2019, the second biggest ever recorded, was Republicans at 119, 
Democrats at 71.6 and independents at 100. So Republicans were plus 47 in October of 2019. Now think about October 2019. Who's in charge? Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. So when Donald Trump is president, Republicans are like, things are great. And Democrats are like, oh, things suck. And then it switches. And now it's like, and you know why this is? I mean, here's the working theory I have as to why this is. That if you turn on Fox News right now, what do you see? Record inflation, people struggling. Bad Democratic leadership. Bad Democratic leadership. And then you get a call from the University of Michigan being like, hey, how are things going? You're like, oh, they're terrible. <laughs> you know, and, and if you turn on uh, the uh, news on the other side, they'll be like, oh, there's some inflation, but it's supply chain disruptions and it's going to ease and, you know, the markets are good and, you know, like the economic performance. So, like, we're getting fed alternate versions of reality now that are so powerful that they actually have overridden any kind of day-to-day -day exposure to the economy in terms of your perception of how things are going. Mm -hmm. That This is some dark shit mm -hmm. because it means that the parties aren't even going to have to pretend to argue to uh, compete on policy. It's literally just whose narrative is stronger. And a journalist in Politico in 2020, Michael Grunwald, wrote, there is a line of thinking that America has entered a kind of postmodern political era where the appearance of governing is just as politically powerful as actual governing because most Americans now live in partisan spin bubbles that insulate, insulate them from facts on the ground. That's awful. And I quoted this in my book because I thought it was such a powerful idea where it's like, hey, it turns out that actual policy is immaterial. It's just how do I make you feel? How are the aligned media organizations broadcasting how you should feel about the economy. Um, so this is scary shit. This is very, very dystopian. Mm -hmm. And Derek also was frightened by it because plus 47, plus 49 based upon party. What Derek said was that I don't even need to ask you about what you think about the economy. I can just ask you how you feel about Joe Biden. And if you like Joe Biden, you'll be like, like economy great. And if you don't like Joe Biden, you'll be like economy terrible. <laughs>
Like, I mean, my question for you is like, play that out and what does it look like? It probably looks like, I mean, we're talking about 10, 50, 100 years from now. People start to join their own virtual governments because that's what they want when they want it. They're virtual societies. They're their new friends and um, for only people that agree with them because that's what they want when they want it. Like what do, and, and do businesses and brands and companies start catering to these like niche personality types where Joe Biden is king and Donald Trump's a devil and vice versa on the other end. And that, and it's going to oh, get wait, more Wait, 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 that. wait, I've got it. I'm just I've trying to play it. it out. I've got it, I've got yeah. it. You know how there was a joke? It wasn't even a joke, I think. When Donald Trump stopped um, being president where they were just going to build him a new Oval Office in Florida. And then he was just going to govern from there. Yeah, there was a joke. They built it in Mar-a-Lago or whatever. Yeah. Um, we What we should do is we should just have different versions of reality that I can broadcast to people. You know, I was just thinking to myself, like, how could you get everyone to think the economy is great? Just like, just to have two White Houses. <laughs> it does have like, here's your reality. You happy? They're like, yeah. I yeah, like great. This one. Yeah. My neighbor's not that bad. I mean, this is, I mean, this is. I mean, maybe it's that level of propaganda to own order to do it. I don't know, but play, my what's my fear is like how this plays out. Why stop out. at two? Why not right. have five? Why not five? Why not twenty? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And if you're talking about, you know, I think I want to do some more research on our takes. We haven't given you our takes on Web three and the metaverse. So for you crypto nerds, and I say nerds as if it's not going to be mainstream sooner rather than later. Um, but for those of you who are passionate about that, I think we we will dive in, but not not in this episode. But I think. If this new virtual world start becoming a thing, and if that's where Facebook's going, um, and Black Mirror episodes become real life, where you can just upload your subconscious to different parts of reality, um, why not? I don't know. Um, like we just force ourselves to make this reality so terrible, and that's where it goes. Well, I made this argument in the War on Normal People. I said billions of dollars are going to be spent on making these virtual worlds that are extraordinarily enticing and pleasant. No. Uh, and the real world is going to get less and less pleasant. Uh, you know, and this was before COVID and the rest of it. That's true. Uh, and so, which do you think is going to win over time? And uh, I, I thought it was obvious that eventually a lot of people are going to be plugged into virtual worlds. Um, because the virtual world can be whatever you want. Yep. The, you know, the president can be whoever you want, maybe. I mean, to this point, That's it turns true. out that how you feel about who, who's in power apparently like, really affects how you think that everything is going. Uh, so I, I think your vision is well taken, Zach. It's that, like, you know, why do I care who's in that White House when I can just put the goggles on and then... I got a new one. And if the only thing that really matters in that equation, in that scenario, is that you're buying more bounty paper towels on Amazon or buying whatever hyper you know, like you're still consuming in the attention economy, then it will happen, right? Like, I, I you know. I, well, th this is one very compelling reason, too, why when people are like, oh, I don't pay attention to politics, it's entirely rational. It's like if you mm. pay a lot of attention to politics, it can depress you. It can infuriate It does, you. not can. It's statistically proven to lower your happiness by like 8 to 11%. Yeah. yeah. So people are like, oh, I just don't pay attention to that shit. It'll be like, oh, yeah, smart, I get, smart I get guy. it. Smart, smart, smart. That's yeah, why a lot yeah, of people yeah. don't pay attention to politics like you. <laughs> yeah, he's just kind of trolling everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I got that uh, a lot. <laughs> well, I mean, for, for, for me, too, it's like I pay, pay attention to this stuff. But one of the things I really try and do is not let it affect my mood, Yeah, which is, you know, like it's not always easy. And I, I think that's one of the things about forward, too, which is like, look, we're lucid. We're rational. We just don't want to let this stuff uh, make me sad and mad and turn me against other people. 
uh, and generally uh, be distraught. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, which is a highly unusual approach to politics because the most effective emotions right now people can use on you are fear and anger. Yep. And so if we're not trying to make you afraid or angry, though I will say there are times when I do get angry at just how ridiculous our system is and how dysfunctional it all is and um, the incentives around polarization are so strong, like the billions and billions of dollars. And like we have to go create our own marketplace around votes and media and donors. Uh, like the, you have billion dollar marketplaces on either side of you. And then you're going to try and create this new one, um, which by the way is totally vital. And it turns out that, you know, 62% of Americans want some version of it. And 44%, uh, you know, would, would love to have uh, another, um, tent to, to rest under. Uh, so, but it turns out that those people are disproportionately uh, smart enough to stay the fuck away from politics. <laughs> 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 like, like that, that's like the great irony of it. Yeah. The fear I have in the metaverse, um, we will dive in more on this, but it's like, if capitalism and the markets are untethered and just able to build this, you know, with no government anything, you know they'll build it. You know it'll happen. Like, I mean, they'll find a way to make VR better. And like, I mean, it's I don't, it's not a matter of if, it's when, right? Um, and I still like the world we live in. I know, I mean, there's plenty of people who don't. I mean, that's um, maybe part of what's driving it. Um, but uh, I still think what we got is worth saving. Uh, I know you do too. I'd much rather invest in trying to make the real world more pleasant and harmonious and habitable rather than head to the virtual world. Try and make one up, yeah. Yeah, though the virtual world is going to exist, it's going to be real, uh, you know, we have to try and make it as good as it can be. Um, but between those two priorities, certainly the, the real world is a lot more important in my opinion. Amen. I don't want Ready Player One. We're heading to Ready Player One. I mean, yeah, we're yeah, very... We uh, all right, let's talk about something positive before we wrap. What do you, What's making you happy this week? Uh, I had a wonderful holiday. Uh, stuff, oh, I'm, I'm actually going to throw out something that cool. that uh, I have an idea for, and I hope that listeners find find this interesting. So um, I'm considering co-authoring a political thriller about 2024 that's going to try and forecast some of the likely scenarios. Of course, you'd fictionalize it and you know change names and like smash some characters together. Um, but I, I think this could be a public service and fascinating because if, if you look at what's going to happen, it's not going to be great. So we might as well start trying to play it out. Mm. I, I kind of want to play it out for myself. So if you're interested in a novel political thriller like this, uh, you know, like I might be trying to bring it to you. I don't know if that's fun. I, I like love that. Andrew too. Yang, the political thriller writer. I hope it is somewhat i hope it's almost as good as your first thriller concept which is blood caucus which uh i think we've talked about on this podcast uh yeah so blood caucus this is our first was concept a, so if you like this idea. you like his book yeah, <laughs> this a, a movie idea where um it was a horror movie set in iowa and the presidential candidates get killed one by one yep um which would be a great fucking movie so i think it'd be a hilarious movie, movie. It, so it judd aptow like if you listen to this yes. i think he's got your name written all over it um so Blood Caucus is one thought. 2024, the novel be another. Uh, yeah, like, you know, always exciting things. Uh, and, and with a purpose behind them, it's good fun here at Forward. Uh, I love that. And on a more fun note, 
The Buffalo Bills play the New play the New England pa- New England Patriots Monday Night Football in Buffalo. I'm going. Let me just say this: I talk about the Bills all the time in here, but I can feel like I have a specific time to talk about it right now because everyone hates the Patriots, and so we're all Buffalo Bills fans, America, this Monday, and I'll be there in person. It's gonna be 20 degrees outside and probably sleeting or whatever it's going to do in Lake near Lake Erie. But go Bills! Screw the Pats! I'm excited. Anyway, that's what's getting me happy. That's why I need the real verse, not the metaverse, because I got to watch my bills in real life, you know? Yes, let's go real world. (laughs) All right, guys, we love you. Thank you for tuning in. We'll see you Monday. Monday.